want to read along, open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We are working from the English Standard Version. I will read verses 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you like always for your word that's ever enlightening, ever straightening, ever correcting, ever promoting, ever instilling into us hope and power and boldness and understanding, Father God. We ask you to breathe upon the text tonight, Father God, and I pray, God, that somehow in some small way, Father God, I can do justice to what happened that day when Paul listened to Epaphras of the great gospel. God, I pray, God, you just anoint my lips, Father God. Open up our hearts. Open up our minds to understand what the scriptures teach. In Jesus' name. I title this message, We Give Thanks to God. And when we get to that text, you'll understand why. But uh, we started uh, studying the book of Colossians last week with an introduction onto what was going on and why Paul wrote. And the main themes he was writing about was Christ's deity and Christ's supremacy over all things, whether visible or Invisible rulers we can see and the rulers we cannot see that Christ stands supreme over all. We speak about Christ's perfect salvation for sinners and Christ's perfect rule over his people, the church, even though we might not see it, Christ perfectly rules over his church, no matter what somebody would like to say. Contrary to that, Christ is absolute perfect rule over his church. He walks among the seven lampstands and he holds the seven ministers in his hands as the book of Revelation teach us Christ is in control that's good news, I hope you understand that that Christ is in control as a church no matter what we see going on around us Christ is in control these are the major themes we'll be focusing on over the next three or four months as we go through these four short chapters and as I said last week, the object is a high view of Christ it's Christology, it's to really understand the the nature of Christ not just to believe in his deity but understand the implications that a divine son has come in human form to die for our sins and now who has been raised and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty forever interceding for us and watching over his church and and all the implications of who Christ is and what he has done, what he's doing now, what he's going to do in the future and now that plays out in our personal day to day lives. Who Christ is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he's going to do, has everything to do with how you and I live every 24-hour day. We're not to take that for granted. We are to constantly feed and be nurtured on Christ through his word, 
as we worship through prayer, constantly fed on Christ. Hebrews says it succinctly. Look into Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We are to keep our eyes on Christ. Amen. Uh, talking to somebody about this one day and about Christ and it's all about Christ. And they said, when is it too much? When do we stop? I said, well, when we meet the author, then we won't have to worry about studying him anymore. We'll know him face to face. And that's when it stops. The study of Christ stops when we meet the author of Scripture. Until then, we should devote our times, even our personal time, and I encourage this all the time, both me and John, that even in our personal devotion, our personal studies, we, we should make it a quest to truly understand and know Christ personally from the Scriptures. We should do everything we can to truly immerse ourselves into what every book of the Bible says about Christ. It should be a personal devotion. And again, that doesn't stop until we go home and we meet him. Our text tonight is all about thanksgiving. And it's important to understand that when we read verses 1 to 8, especially verses 3 to 8. It's all about apostolic, grateful thanksgiving to God. I want to look at this text tonight through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. God is the object in these verses. We're going to speak about hope. We're going to speak about faith. We're going to speak about love. We're going to speak about Paul, Epaphras, being a faithful minister. We're going to speak about the culture they lived in, the culture we live in. But please understand this. The object is always God. The object was always God for Paul in these verses. I want to open up with the first two verses that are here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. The opening two verses form a greeting, a typical first century letter writing. But there's a, a Christian twist to all this. First, there is the identification of the writer, which Paul does. He says, Paul, and that's fine, but he addresses himself with the title, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This sets the tone for the whole letter as ultimately coming and residing in God. That this is spiritual authority. Paul never saw this church before, and he's writing on behalf of Epaphras, but he's really writing on behalf of God, and he sets the tone that this is official business. This is an official letter. And it's throughout the whole letter. Uh, apostles represent God as his ministers, his representatives in the earth, to speak about Christ. That was the apostle's job. He was set apart to preach Christ to the people. And, and Paul was specifically chosen as an apostle to whom? The Gentiles. And this is a Gentile church, and Paul identifying himself as the apostle, as God's representatives in matters about Jesus Christ on this earth. That's his job. They're Christ's official representatives in the world. And he also identifies Timothy. He's not an official apostle, but Paul doesn't identify Timothy to placate Timothy, to make him feel good. It, but to show that God, as God sent Paul, Paul has the authority, and it's important to send Timothy. As Paul represented Christ, Timothy represented Paul. And it was important for that because they never saw Timothy either. And there were times in, uh, in Paul's ministry that he would send other, uh, other people, other, uh, other, uh, other ministers. Timothy was one of them to other places and they would represent Paul. They would speak on behalf of Paul. 
when Timothy spoke, he spoke on behalf of Paul. The recipients of the letter are all the believers in Colosseum, both men and women. He calls them saints and faithful brothers here. He purposely uses this title to identify their special relationship to God now. They're not Gentiles, they're saints. That's an Old Testament allusion to the chosen ones of God. They were chosen by God. They were set apart for God's purpose. Now he's applying this Old Testament Jewish title to Gentile Christians. So it's purposeful. It's to let them know that they are now part of God's covenant people. No matter what someone says to the contrary, they are part of God's chosen people. They're faithful brothers. Uh, some, some commentators like to think it's a synonymous between saints and faithful brothers, but I believe there's much, much more here that Paul's intends, and he's intending to encourage them that they're doing well, that they're remaining faithful. This is pastoral affirmation. This is a young church. The church is maybe five, six, seven, eight years old at tops, and, and, and faithful is used four times in this book, and he's affirming them, he's encouraging them, he's encouraging these young believers, this young church, that you too are faithful, you're saints, in God's covenant program of redemption, you are part of God's chosen people, selected out of the world, chosen out of the world to represent God, and you're faithful, contrary to what everybody says, or what you might think about yourself, you're faithful. How many times we all need to hear that we're faithful. This young church needed to hear that they too were faithful. When we get into the eternal heresy that was going on within this church, we're going to find out how important that salutation was because that's how grace and peace comes to us. We don't land, we don't stay there and say, oh, I need grace and peace. I need grace and peace. We get grace and peace when the word of God is opened and the word of God is preached and we're reminded no matter how bad we were this week, no matter how many temptations we fought, We're still God's faithful people. We're still God's saints. We're still God's chosen ones. We're still part of his eternal purpose. He has not forsaken us. He has not forgotten us. We're still God's. How much more to these people? They had no Bible. They didn't have internet. They couldn't listen to sermons. This letter must have been refreshing to their soul when they saw the apostle calling them saints. Calling them faithful. Grace and peace from God our Father. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's how grace and peace comes. It comes through the gospel. I want to turn our hearts now to sections, uh, verses 3 to 8. Because this is the main section. And this is where I titled it, uh, We Give Thanks Always. And what we have going on here is Paul, this, this, extreme gratitude Paul's has. And it's not just any kind of gratitude. Remember who's writing. This is the Apostle Paul, 30 years in the mission field. He's on the house arrest. And this verse, this section doesn't start in verse 3. It actually starts in verse 8. I want to read verse 8. Epaphras, this faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, has made known to us your love in the spirit. You might not think that verse 3 really starts in verse 8, but it really does. Let me explain to you. Somewhere around the year AD 62, Paul has come to the end of his life. He's in Rome. He's under house arrest. And under house arrest, he had a prison guard that was watching over him. But they allowed him the luxury of people coming to what? Visit him. We see this in Acts chapter 28. 
And many people came to visit Paul. And it says that Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did. One day, guess who shows up? Epaphras. Epaphras was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus about eight years earlier. When Paul preached there for three years, Epaphras, who was 100 miles away in Colossae, came to Ephesus. He heard Paul preached. Paul preached for three years, and this man was turned from paganism, turned from darkness, turned from many gods, turned to the Lord Jesus Christ from serving many gods to serving the one true and living God. But his faith did not end in Ephesus. When he went back home, what did he do? He brings his faith with him. And he started speaking to people about Christ. And we find out from just this text of how faithful this man was to the gospel. Paul calls him a faithful minister and a beloved brother. Understand something. These people turned from darkness. He went to this little rural town his own hometown, he went back there and he started speaking to people about this new God he heard about. This, this, this itinerant preacher, this Jewish itinerant preacher that was preaching in Ephesus, he heard the message of eternal life, he turned away from everything, he embraces Christ, he goes back to his hometown, and there he sets up shop, and there he faithfully ministers. Not just as an evangelist. They learned the gospel Epaphras. He spent time diligently over a period of not just months, but years speaking to him about Christ. And guess what happened after a while? People started coming. Gentiles started listening to him. Gentiles started putting their faith into Christ. But understand something. They put their faith in a hope that was laid up in heaven. When Epaphras preached he spoke not just about the resurrection, not just about the crucifixion, not just about salvation, not just about forgiveness, not just about peace with God, not just about being justified. But before someone can genuinely see the hope of eternal life, before you and I can see the hope of eternal life, a faithful minister has to show the hopelessness of this world. Make no claims about it. Before we can put our trust and see the glorious hope of Christ, we have to be brought down to realize just how hopeless and blind we are without Christ in this world. Amen? How many days we thought we really knew who God was? Trying to serve God through orthodoxy. Trying to serve God through sacraments. Trying to serve God through rituals. Year after year after year until one day we found out it's a personal relationship with God. It's paid full and free. It's no more guessology. It's theology. We finally know the person of God in a personal way through his son, Jesus Christ. But before we have to hear that, we have to realize just how hopeless everything we hold on to this world is. He would follow Paul's lead. Paul would go and say something like this. You were dead in your sins and your transgressions. When you used to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of disobedience, and by nature, we were all children of wrath. Epaphras, like Paul, like Christ, like the other apostles, like the Old Testament prophets, we have to be faithful to pointing people to their absolute abject hopelessness. 
There is no hope without Christ. And this man is faithful. And what they saw, they saw the clarity of just how powerful this hope was. That a son of God came and died for their sins to bring peace with God. These people were caught up in deep darkness. These people were thought they had to try to somehow appease God. Somehow buy God's favor. And then they found out that no, there's nothing you can do for God. But God did it for us. The gift, the glorious truth of the gospel. They embraced it. They saw it. It's not about trying to appease a God or appease a hundred gods. It's about one God pleasing himself in his son on our behalf as a gift to give us hope. And they saw it. And he embraced it. This man is a faithful minister. And they saw that hope. A hope that was laid up in heaven. This man did not preach a hope that God can do something for you right now. If you give him something, he'll do something for you right now. This wasn't about prosperity. It wasn't about health. It wasn't about Uh, felt needs being met. No, they saw and understood the gospel in truth. Epaphras took, he, he stayed with what Paul taught him, that this is about eternal life. It is about peace with God. It is about justification. It's about a savior who vicariously took our sins upon himself to give us his righteousness. They understood. They learned from this man week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out. He doctrinally taught them the things of the faith. They learned solid doctrine. They learned solid theology. And they saw the hope. The hope started coming together. They realized the emptiness and the hopelessness of this world. And then they now they can see the risen, glorious Christ. That's faithful. That's faithful. This wasn't a peace, peace when there is no peace. This was no superficiality coming at you and saying, what do you need? I'll tell you what you need. No, Epaphras told them what they needed the most. They needed to be forgiven. And that God met their greatest need. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He met the greatest need. And then it happened by the the Spirit's conviction. They were convicted of their sin. They turned away from their wicked ways. They embraced Christ. And now they realize they have a hope in heaven. That's what they put their faith in. That was the message. This was no feel-good message by Epaphras. When they believed, they believed and they understood they needed to be saved. And when they grabbed onto Christ, they said they believed in Christ. They didn't, they didn't believe about Jesus. This wasn't uh, some kind of believism, some easy believism. They believed and they knew the Son of God. Doctrinally, they understood. They needed Him. And they embraced Him. They had legs. They ran after Him. They had arms. They chased Him to now. They, 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 they squeezed Christ by faith. They made Christ their own. That's the faith. That's the living act of faith that Paul is writing about. Your God is now my God. Your Father is now my Father. Your will is now my will. What you love, I will love. What you hate, I will hate. It's Jesus and Jesus only. That is active, living, dynamic faith. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians when he says, They turned from pagans to serve the living God. And that's what this church did. 
And they were able to put this living faith in because they saw their own hopelessness and they saw the hope that God provided for them in the gospel in Christ. Paul's taking this all in. Epaphras is coming. He's telling them some of the bad news, but he's giving them the testimonies of what's going on in this little rural community 1,100 miles away from where Paul was in house, under house arrest in Rome. And Paul is taking it in. He's hearing the testimony of what's going on. His heart is overwhelmed. He's delighting in everything. Epaphras is telling him of what's going on on the other side of the world. And it doesn't end there. Then he starts to hear not just how faithful Epaphras was to the gospel. Not just how faithful sinners were to give their faith in Christ. But this vertical faith now went horizontal. And they have love in the spirit one for another. That's when you know faith is real. You know faith is real in God when there's love for other people. And Paul is writing of this love that you have for all the saints. He calls it in verse 8, this love in the spirit. This is this determined, predetermined action. It's pointed towards other people's needs. And that's what was going on in this church. It was cross-pollination. People were reaching out. A church was developing. The body of Christ was forming. One body with many members were helping each other. Everybody was involved. This was what was going on on the other side of the world. And Paul is sitting there on the house of rest in Rome. And he's looking at Epaphras, this man who heard the gospel under his preacher, who went away a hundred miles into Colossia. And there he preached the gospel. Now Paul's hearing for the first time of just how incredible it's taken place under this man's ministry. His heart is overwhelmed. Paul can say nothing but, we give thanks to the Father of all, Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you always, since the first day we heard of your faith and the love that you have for all the saints. Paul is overwhelmed. He might be under house arrest, but you cannot put the gospel and its power under house arrest. Paul was sitting there at the last days of his life, and he's hearing this extreme glory going on about what God is doing in the world and he's thankful for God. He's thankful for God that he raised up a faithful minister like Epaphras to go back and preach the gospel with all its, in, it, 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 all its power to save. It's, in, it's, uh, it's intrinsic. Just like Jesus teaches us in the parable of the sower. That a man went out to sow. The kingdom of God is as a man who went out to sow. He went out and he sowed seeds. And he went to bed at night. And when he woke up, the, the seed had sprouted. But he says, he himself does not know how. The intrinsic power of the gospel. The Epaphras didn't dress it up. He preached. He didn't have to do nothing but one thing. Be faithful. God took care of all the rest. And Paul is hearing this. And Paul is saying, not just in, in Colosseum, but in all the world, the gospel's bearing fruit. This little rural town needed to know that they're not alone, they're not isolated. That the work that God is doing there, God is doing in other places. And it must have been amazing when Paul is listening to Epaphras, and Epaphras is telling him about what's going on in this little rural town. 
and, 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 and the work of grace that's taken place. And in short, there must have been testimonies. There must have been times when Epaphras was telling Paul and Paul, there's people there, 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 were, there, there were temple prostitutes and their, their parents were temple prostitutes. And, and they came and they heard the liberating power of the message of the gospel and, and how God washed them and God made them clean. And they, and they felt like virgins again because that's the power of the gospel. There were slaves there that got saved. People that were bound to an earthly master that realized, you know something, I've never felt more free in my life when I came to Christ. And then there were masters that owned many slaves and they realized that they were not on top of the food chain and that there's a master over them who loves them. That's what took place at this church. And Paul has taken it in. And then he says, I have to write. I have to write. I have to write and thank God for what I'm hearing. What this man is telling me is taking place on the other side of the Mediterranean world. He's overwhelmed with God and his goodness. It says so much about this man Epaphras in the gospel. When we look at it from what Paul, how Paul was writing and how his heart was overwhelmed with delight for what God was doing in people's lives he's never seen. How God raised up a faithful minister to go back to his hometown and carry on the work that Paul started in Ephesus. It's overwhelming. As I studied this out over the last couple of weeks and I just tried to enter into what happened in that room that day, Epaphras showed up and started telling Paul what was transpiring in that small town. How Paul's heart must have been overwhelmed with gratitude. And he sits down on the right. It says so much about Paul. Paul wasn't just all for himself. He was inclusive. There wasn't Paul and his gospel. Paul was concerned about Timothy. Paul was concerned about the brethren, the saints, the faithful ministers. He was concerned about Epaphras. Paul was all inclusive. He was tender. Paul could see the fruit because when we get into the rest of the text, when we get into the rest of the second chapter, we're going to see that there was a lot of internal problems at this church. But Paul is the wise minister. And Paul can see beyond some, some problems to see the genuine work of the Holy Spirit. And that's something we have to train our eyes for. We have to train our eyes that even though we can see some negative stuff, even though we can see some trials, even though we can see some bad teaching, though we can see certain things, we have to train ourselves to recognize the genuine work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul saw that. He saw there was genuine faith. He saw there was genuine preaching of hope. And he saw that there was genuine love for other believers. How important that is. that We have to train ourselves to see that. But it says something about this man, Epaphras, this faithful minister and beloved fellow servant. Epaphras was a faithful preacher of the truth. This man was bold. You might not realize how bold 
old this man was to go back to his hometown and preach. How many people know here today that we live in a post-modern world? How many people know that we live in a very pragmatic world? Uh, Relativism is the rule of the day. Tolerance, religious tolerance. Uh, Don't say anything that's not what? Politically? It's no different than it was 2,000 years ago. Under Roman rule, you can worship 100 gods. But you couldn't say your god was better than someone else's. You can worship Roman God, you can worship a Greek God, but you couldn't go there and say, we're the only God. You can worship Jesus, but you have to worship Caesar also. But if you just start worshiping Jesus alone, and you start telling us there's only one truth, he would have got persecuted the way you and I get persecuted today. This man was bold. And he went and told them the same thing Paul told the Ephesians. Gods made with hands are no gods at all. This man was bold and he went toe-to-toe with the culture to bring that gospel message to them. Under the threat of persecution, he continued to preach boldness. Paul talks about the word of truth, the gospel, the truth. Three times he mentions the truth. He was no different than the culture we live in today. People don't want to hear about absolute truth. They don't mind saying there's another way. Jesus is another way. But they don't want to hear Jesus is the only way. They don't want to hear. They don't want to think the implication is what you're saying. That Jesus is the only way and my religion's bad. They would have got persecuted today. Same as 2,000 years ago. This kind of society doesn't want to hear there's only one way. They don't want to hear about moral absolutes. But this is the world that Epaphras went to. This is the world and culture me and you were called to. To stand boldly for the truth and be faithful. No matter what. To proclaim that yes, Christianity is the only way. That the Christian truth is not just a truth. It's not just the best truth. It is the only truth that leads to God. It is the only rule for faith and life. Is Christ. You know and I know today when we get into conversations like that, they don't usually go too well, do they? But Epaphras didn't shrink back. He didn't get sheepish. He stayed toe-to-toe with the culture. They learned it. The word implies over a length of time. So Epaphras didn't go there and say, well, Jesus loves you. He stood there. He went toe-to-toe. He, he, he answered all their questions. Well, what about Aphrodite? And what about Artemis? And what about this goddess? And what about that goddess? And he says, no, there's only one way. Jesus is the way. And this is why. And he labored amongst them. He was faithful. He didn't hear something from Paul and get to someplace else and start preaching something else. He preached what Paul preached. That's why Paul can say he's a, he's a, a faithful minister and brother in the gospel. He didn't change the tone. He didn't change the wording. He didn't compromise it. He didn't make it more pliable and applicable to people. So they would want it. He stayed faithful. He took the time to teach and to think that he must have loved this church because he traveled over a thousand miles to go see Paul. 
We spoke about this last week. He didn't take the camel. He didn't take the train. He might have took a boat or two, but most of it was on foot. 1,100 miles he traveled because he loved this church. This man is definitely a faithful minister and a beloved fellow servant with the Apostle Paul. This is somebody Paul could be proud of. When it comes to applying this text today, the first thing we can look at easy is how do we act as Paul acted when he heard about God's work in someone else's ministry? How do you hear? How do you hear when you hear other people are getting saved? Do you rejoice? Do I rejoice when we hear that people are actually turning from darkness to Christ? Does it warm our heart? Can we generally say, thank you, God? Can we generally say, thanks for what I heard today? That's what it's all about. If I never hear anything again, I heard today that God is doing a work somewhere. How important that is. Does it warm our hearts to see God at work in other ministries? Do we take a step back? And and Paul didn't try to get all the glory. He just stayed back and said, praise God. Praise God that Epaphras brought you the gospel. And it's bearing fruit like it is in all the world. How about just truth? Have we failed to grasp just how special Christianity is? Have we failed that? Have we forgotten just how powerful truth is? You're supposed to say, well, how do we know what the truth is? What's the criteria of truth? Well, we know scripture is. How do we know it's reliable? Well, 25 years later, I know it's reliable because nothing can change my life the way Christ does. Nothing can sustain me in the worst of times like Christ can. Nothing can move people forward for the hope of heaven like the gospel can. It's found in its reliability. It's found in its trustworthiness. It's found in how it changes sinners and makes them saints. It takes bad people and makes them good. That's where the power is found. It's found in what it does to our life. It saves us. It changes us. It transforms us. It breaks down the walls of prejudice. There's a love going on between the brethren. Prejudices, self-righteousness just uh, is all breaking away. People are generally caring for other people. Something greater than myself had to get me to love people. I was a prejudiced human being. Something greater than myself. A lie could never have changed my heart like the gospel could. Do we really understand how special it is that people die for the truth? That the martyrs over 2,000 years just died for the truth. Do you know the the gospel, the the Bible we have, people died to give us that Bible. Under threat of their life and being burned alive. Protestant ministers preach faithfully the gospel. 
Martin Luther went toe-to-toe with the whole Roman Catholic Church. One man, one man under the threat of being burned alive went toe-to-toe on nothing but the truth in his veins. Nothing but the truth about Christ. In our society, in our friends, in our circle, our sphere of influence, do we shrink away from the absolute claims of Christianity? Do we avoid the hard conversations that Jesus is the only way? Do we try to make people feel comfortable because we don't want them to be uncomfortable? So we don't say nothing? Are we like Epaphras? Can we go toe-to-toe in a loving manner against a culture and a society that loves religious tolerance and they don't want to hear the moral claims of the gospel? They don't want to hear the absolute claims of Christ that there is no other way? Do we need to be more bold? How about this great Christian trifecta? Faith, love, and hope. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. We know it. Faith, love, and hope. The greatest of these are what? Love. I ask us today. Is the focus of our hope, is the focus of our faith, a hope that's laid up in heaven? Is the focus of our faith of what God has done for me last or what God can do for me today? Can we say if God never did anything for me, I will be faithful to him to the end because of the hope laid up for me in heaven? Can you really say that with me? Can you really say if God never blessed me with anything for another 50 years, I will serve him faithfully because of the hope that's laid up for me in heaven? That question says so much about our understanding of the gospel and about the quality of our faith. Do we need to hear messages that just meet the felt need all the time? Do I need this to hear what God's going to do for me tomorrow if I do this today? Do we need to be faithful the way Epaphras was faithful? Nourished on the truth of the gospel. And that's what changes us. And is our faith producing this horizontal action of love towards other people? Is it changing our life to the point of aiming our heart to the needs of other people around us and expressing our gratitude to God in the lives of the people around us. Where is our faith? What's the quality of our love? Where is our hope? These are questions that as we go through this book, they'll start giving greater answers. And our challenge as we go through the book is to really understand just how incredible Christ is. 
and that our hearts need to bow down before this invincible ruler king who died on the cross. We sung it today. We sung about this one we have to stand for, who came and died for us. Is that genuinely changing our life? Father, we come before you. And we ask you, Father God, as we go through these chapters, Lord God, that you will continue to transform us so that we can come to a full understanding of your will for us, that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in everything we do, Father. God, I ask you to come and bless today. Bless the sacraments that we are about to take in as the ushers get ready. I ask you, Father God, that we take the sermon to heart and the things you've spoken to us, Father. And as we prepare our hearts and our minds to partake in the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior, I pray, Father God, that you speak quietly to our hearts.